I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Jack Miller. Welcome to episode 42, Embracing Discomfort. Discomfort is one of those things that people are, well, uncomfortable with. Most of us don't like being around someone behaving in an obviously bigoted or embarrassing way, or using language we find offensive for some reason. Maybe it's talking about God in a way that goes against our beliefs, or using an outdated expression like Indian giver, or objectifying a woman on television with crass language about body parts. Let's face it, people can be pretty obnoxious, and it's no fun being around it. It's natural to avoid discomfort. But it's important not to, as you'll hear in my conversation with Jessica Heilman, the executive director of the Center for Women's Leadership, an organization housed in the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University, where I also happen to teach. It's a relatively long interview, so I'll get to it without too much preface. I'll just say this. Jessica and I go a lot of places in our conversation, and I learned a lot from sitting down with her. Among other things, including discomfort, you'll learn a bit about the mission and activities of the Center Jessica Heads, a really fascinating organization. I've included a few links in the show notes if you want to learn more about it. Okay, here's the interview. Enjoy. So I'm sitting down today with Jessica Heilman, Executive Director of the Center for Women's Leadership. Can you tell me sort of broadly what the Center for Women's Leadership does and then maybe also tell me what some of the biggest challenges and struggles are for you as the director? Oh gosh, yeah. So right now we do a few things. Um, We are focused on women gender expansive leaders and we've gotten pretty loose with the term emerging leader. I've really expanded to think about that. And you know, maybe it's because of my background here at Portland State University, but I don't see that so much as age. I see that as people's readiness and they're kind of recognizing something in their community that they want to be part of or that they want to, you know, do to they want to change or something that brought pro- is a problem that they want to address in their community. And so I think that that's been a really nice way to kind of expand that. Part of what your job is, is actually defining what the mission of the center is. Am I right about that? I think during the pandemic, we've had to. We've had to address a little bit that is what we've done for the last 20 years, still relevant to people that are kind of coming to age, if you will, in their own leadership journeys. And we've we've addressed a little bit of that, and we've changed a little bit of that in the last couple of years. So give me a couple examples of how you've changed that. Yeah, so we've done learning series now, which is not something that we did prior to the pandemic. So this last spring, we offered a 
several part series called Solidarity and Sovereignty. And that actually drew about 200 community members that participated in that. And not only did it expand us to, you know, of course our new leadership Oregon alums who are currently leading in the state, but it was also, you know, local government folks. It was people from, you know, kind of water organizations, nature organizations. So it brought a really nice kind of intersection of different places in which people are leading into one topic. And that was really different for us. We had never done that before. And we were really excited to see that we, even though it was hybrid and, you know, kind of people think that people have lost interest in learning on Zoom, we ended up having about 200 people that stuck with us through through five weeks of learning together. And wow. that, that was really different for us. What are some of the challenges of trying to pull together those that kind of diverse group in that environment and that many people? That's a, that seems like a lot to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so technological awkwardness always and so I think that has been something that, you know, we've we've learned and we've taken on as part of our team. It's just acknowledging it up front that, like, something's going to go wrong, you know, and asking for people to kind of be in the humanness of that experience with us. So that would be probably the biggest thing. And then making sure that people, because we're doing intergenerational audience, that they have the technology skills and information that they need. I mean, technologically, that's a that's a big thing. But what about psychologically, sociologically? How is the intergenerational sort of nature of your work particularly challenging? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is vocabulary, and some words have been politicized over time for different reasons. Particularly, feminist or feminine is something that can mean something very different um, depending on kind of you know which wave of feminist <laughs> that I might be talking to and the way that they hold values around that, and so. Yes, technology is kind of the surface level issue, but once we get into kind of more of the content, we've learned that we need to do a lot of prep work to share definitions and um, do some community norms so that people have shared expectations of what might be happening in that space together. And if you go on our website right now, you're gonna find like a very long page of terms and definitions. And what we've learned is that, and maybe because we are at Portland State University, I always think, okay, our, our opportunity is to do some education with folks. And so some of that is using um, terms of vocabulary that we can link back to our website. So if people really want to kind of be like, I have no idea what gender expansive is. And, you know, that's, that's a newer vocabulary term probably in the last five years or so that's really become a little bit more involved and used in women's traditionally kind of women's spaces and so being able to have some of that has helped a lot to get people kind of understanding what we're talking about and then being ready to have a lot of conversation about it too I think that's something you know back in your first question asking one of the challenges is making um, kind of the tension points of having time for our emerging leaders who are kind of a little bit maybe more radical and activist in their thinking at this time if they're kind of making sense of the world and leadership and then making time to also sit with people of other generations who are grappling with wait why are we now calling it this what does that mean to say women and gender expansive who's going to be there and and being able to have a little bit of that dialogue too i like the idea that you essentially have a glossary a vocabulary list that you reference to people because that does give you a starting point now you say that that, that you have to have conversations around these things what are some of the ways that the people you work with understand what it means to be feminist and Mm -hmm. then maybe talk about the challenges of navigating that diverse landscape i think it gets used and maybe overuse like many words in English. It's like, oh, we, you know, we're a feminist organization. It's like, well, what do you actually mean by that? And I would say that 
my practice has even lended towards being wanting to be an intersectional feminist and wanting to have um, an intersectional space, an an intersectional group of team members. And so what I mean by intersectional, I should probably explain that first before I talk about why intersectional feminist is acknowledging that the different identities in which we each hold um, interplays with systems of oppression and how we're able to operate or allowed to operate within the world. And then you add leadership into that or feminist into that. And so we're thinking about how people operate in the workplace, how they show up, how they're perceived when they show up in those spaces, how they believe the different biases that are against them. And so that's when I'm thinking about um, our practice specifically and how we approach feminists. Um, I've got to throw intersectional in front of it. And so then right there, I've already kind of been like, oh, it already needs another word to comfy it to be, you know, different in this space. I like that you bring up the intersectional nature because, you know, everybody has a different experience with systems of oppression and inequalities. It's impossible to disentangle that from any conversation about leadership, about providing resources, about, you know, essentially just training people because you have to acknowledge that whatever experience of oppression and inequality you might have had, even if it's a really deep one and you have a really good analysis of it, it's going to be different from person to person. So how do you have those conversations with people about bringing out their experience with systems of oppression and then generating understanding between them? Is this part of your work? I I would tell you that three years ago, I did not think that it would be part of my work. Mm. (laughs) Now I feel like it's, it's a crucial part of the work. And I think some of it is being able to recognize people for where they're at in their own journey and being able to sit with them and ask them questions to build that relationship. And so I I don't think I go into conversations to be like, oh, you're old, I need to change your opinion, which I mean, I think there is some of that tension between generations. I think actually, funny enough, there's there's a quote in the the Barbie movie (laughs) that has helped me kind of appreciate this about, you know, and I'm totally ad-libbing it, but it's like, you know, mothers standing still so daughters can look back and see how far they've come. And I think I've started to appreciate the generations that have come before us of like, they pushed as far as they could and where society allowed them to. They're going to hold what was important at that time. So like the Equal Rights Amendment, like I still have people of certain generations who are like, isn't that what the focus of the Center for Women's Leadership is right now, is really pushing for the Equal Rights Amendment, or teaching women to take on men's traits to be in the workplace. And those are all things that they had to do to survive and to, again, operate with their intersecting identities within systems that allowed them to be in those spaces at that time. But that that part of it for me is like, recognizing that they did what they could do instead of being upset with them for what they couldn't do at that time. And I think that's been a huge, huge shift for me of just sitting and listening and asking those questions of curiosity to hear their story and to hear the vocabulary they're using, because typically that's a really big hint to me at kind of where their lens of the world is and how I can sit with them in that conversation. I want to get back to, I I kind of, I think I sidetracked you from saying more specifically, like what is it that the Center for Women's Leadership does that these challenges are embedded in. I think, you know, if I was to, to boil it down, it's to create space. And I think that that's something that we're, we still, yes, we're like at the end of 2023, do I say 2024, we're still finding that there's still not always space for people of, um, you know, women, gender expansive, marginalized genders to come together, to have maybe affinity-based space, um, to be able to explore ideas. And so we do leadership development programming, learning series, and events to try to amplify that type of type of work. 
and also create some spaces where people of all genders can come together and broaden their learning of those types of topics. And I think that's still like, you know, it, you mentioned, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, but I think that that's something that's still a through line is we're still looking for those places where people can build community without feeling marginalized, without feeling, you know, kind of those intersecting sexism, racism, classism, ableism, all of those things. And so I still think we're chasing how to create that environment and how to create that community building space for people. I like the fact that you're explicitly aware that you're chasing it. It can be a fleeting goal and it can also conflict with other things like inclusion is a huge value. Yet when you want to talk about affinity groups and safe spaces, sometimes inclusion moves against the goals. And Mm -hmm. so you have to navigate inclusion with trying to give people a sense of safety. You know, I'm a middle-aged white man. I shouldn't necessarily be invited to everything you do. So when and where do you make those decisions and what are your guiding principles? Well, first, Jack, I have to appreciate your discernment and your self-awareness to recognize that not everything we do is probably a space for you to show up. And, and, to, and to be able to say that without you know, taking it personally, of I, you know, I'm not including you, Jack, <laughs> in these spaces. And I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a constant discernment for me and for you know, our team when we're thinking about different programming spaces and what are the values and goals of what we're trying to accomplish there. For example, our emerging leadership cohort program that we've done every year, New Leadership Oregon, we've made values decisions to partner with alums of that program who held some of our most marginalized identities or most underrepresented identities in that program in the last 20 years and really ask them about, you know, what would that space look like if we really centered who you are in that space? And part of that has been that we've asked people to show up to be ready to not be comfortable and to not be safe, particularly around centering race and anti-racist leadership. And so some of that is doing pre-conversations with people, answering questions that they might have if they've never engaged in that type of space before, and being a lot more intentional in that process of asking those questions of curiosity to really see if they have the readiness to sit in discomfort. Because I think that's what we're looking for now is leaders, you know, emerging leaders who really have the ability to kind of work on their self-awareness and to show up with their identities and, and be ready to be messy with us in that conversation. Because I think that's that's the part that maybe wasn't always offered in leadership spaces before. It's like, we're going to explore the messiness of this. We're going to get into those conversations. And, and when things are said or done that, you know, based on identities are harmful for different reasons, we're going to have a really uncomfortable conversation about it and hopefully role model what it means to be uncomfortable together as a learning community. You know, I love that because I do feel like, you know, I've been in the college classroom for 30 years and I've noticed an increase, I won't say it's drastic, but an increase in the unwillingness to be uncomfortable. And in fact, some people feeling like if there's discomfort, that that's an argument that something's going wrong in that space, not that something is going right. To just kind of have that pre-conversation to say, okay, this could get messy. Whenever you're dealing with real things, Excluding mess is, in fact, that's actually, I would say, an oppressive system. Mm-hmm. Is to say, well, we have to be civilized, we can't be yelling, there can't be tears, there can't be hurt feelings. To me, it's all about being honest about that stuff. And when you do say something that hurts somebody's feelings, owning that you might have made a mistake in what you said and to make that a learning opportunity. People's unwillingness to be uncomfortable, it seems like a big problem to me in the classroom. And I'm hearing that you're saying that that's something that you're trying to train people to sit with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a necessary skill for today's leaders. I mean, I think I'm seeing people 
in spaces with their mental health and um, their experiences that they've had the last few years, you know, again, thinking about our emerging leaders, it's just a different context that they're growing up in. It's a different context in which they're grappling with. And if anything that we can teach them that they can go away and have a little bit more willingness to be in discomfort with each other, to, um, you know, we we asked, you know, we kind of had a a list of community norms this last year, and, and part of it was to address the system, not the person. And so, you know, you know, address the idea, not attack the person. Like, can you talk about, like, why this idea doesn't work for you? Or, you know, why, like, because of your identities that you hold, that idea may be racist and this person didn't realize that because their intention was something else. And so I think that was something that was has been really interesting in our programs and how we're designing that kind of space with each other. And, and I think I have to name white supremacy culture because when I'm thinking about, you know, feminist theory um, and intersectional feminist theory, I have to look at uh, traits and tenets of white supremacy culture and the fear of open conflict is one of those. And I think that we've watched that where, um, you know, I'll, I'll say that, you know, as, as a white woman, I've been socialized to make everybody comfortable and at all costs keep everybody comfortable and by being trained in that way and continuing that kind of thinking, I'm actually perpetuating racism, particularly in multiracial environments. And so that has been something that we've talked about a lot is like, how do we kind of de-socialize ourselves around these norms that were really practices of, you know, that were kind of pervasive in white feminism? Because I think it was kind of like, be thankful that you've been allowed to be here and then, like, at all costs, keep everybody happy that you're here. Yeah. And I, I don't think that that is translating into today's environment. I'm Catherine Cartwright, and you're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, hosted by Dr. Jack Miller. What do you think are the most important skills for not just leaders to have, but for everybody to have, maybe starting with leadership skills. Ooh. Discomfort, particularly around dimensions of identity and race. Also being able to understand power and dimensions of power. Leaders being able to engage and acknowledging that power dynamics always exist. They're different between every relationship in which you hold um, in the workplace, personal, all, all through our lives. And so I think being able to sit in a conversation or sit in a decision and be like, where is the power here? And, you know, we hope that our leaders, because we want them going out and doing, you know, good in the world, (laughs) will be able to address, like, how do I acknowledge the power that I have in this conversation? And then how do I use it for good? And then I think recognizing that leadership in the workplace is changing and to not always feel that the, the person, you know, kind of at the top of the hierarchy is where the only place that leadership takes place. And so if they want to push against the systems within their organization, they can do that from within anywhere that they are within that organization or within their community. I like that leadership is not just from the top. Power circulates in lots of different directions. How do you train people to kind of look for where all the little pockets of power happen to be? Mm -hmm. What are the methods that you convey to people to figure out how to dig out these power dynamics that are existing in all of our interactions? Mm. Being able to recognize that we're all on a learning journey and being able to call out your own mistakes when you make them. I think that's something really valuable and that is shifting a bit. I do think that there was kind of, maybe there still is in some places, like in order to hold on to power, I can never be wrong. And I think one of the things that I myself value in being able to think about leadership spaces is recognizing 
I'm going to mess up all the time and being able to uh, role model that. And so, you know, you, you know, teach in a classroom environment. I typically have a student leadership team. And so being able to role model that I don't always hold all of the knowledge or all of the right answers. And I think that's a little bit, a little bit of a shift. We kind of have a violent language in English. There's a lot of sayings that we've had through time that like, if you really think about them or look them up, it's like pretty messed up. And so I think, you know, being able to correct yourself in the moment. And, and that's kind of a muscle that you'll have to, to flex over time. Like I would guess that like, you've noticed more of that over time, the more that you practice it. And, and I would say that I approach leadership in the same way where I'm like, oh, like that came out in a way that when I think about it is like really not helpful to all of the people in this space. So like, let me rephrase that or explain like why that was wrong and then be able to move on, kind of do that in the moment repair. And that's great role modeling. And you know, there there are all kinds of things that have emerged in the discourse about power in the 30 years I've been doing this. One of them that I just think off the top of my head is microaggressions. I know, and this is where I could sound like sort of promoting middle-aged, I, I remember a world where there were microaggressions, but of course there were microaggressions, we just didn't have a word for it. To be able to have the flexibility to be able to say, okay, so here's this new concept that identifies a power dynamic, and mm. to have someone point it out to you, there is a kind of constant journey of learning how to apply what the new discourse is bringing to us mm. without being resistant like ah you know back in my day that was just called conversation and now it's microaggression what's wrong with that like it's to not get curmudgeonly back to the intergenerational issue like do you find that there is a certain resistance in certain age cohorts to newer language newer concepts ideas that weren't around when they were in their formative years. All of us, regardless of you know age, have some resistance to change because that's what we're really talking about is is change. And um, some of that comes like you know being let, able to let go. And you know for some people, I think that's letting go of maybe their relevance and relevance being their access to power. And so I think that that's been that's been really interesting to think about while I'm having these conversations with people. But I think some of the most interesting thing has been their ability to learn over time. And so, and, and again, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting place to be for me. And I, I use interesting a lot when I don't have that exact emotion of like how I want to describe it. Um, it's a good placeholder word. It's, <laughs> it's a good interesting. placeholder. It's interesting. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and I guess that that lens starts, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by learning and kind of bearing witness to people's learning over time. And I guess, you know, we're, here we are sitting at PSU. We probably both find some fascination in that and creating spaces where we get to get to learn with people. When I first got in this role, we did um, quite a bit of community engagement, some surveying of our alums, became aware that depending on people's identities, that they were having really different experiences in our programming. And some people, you know, that were, you know, white and cisgender were having these amazing, like, experiences, transformational. And other people were like, yes, it's transformational. And I had this really harmful dialogue, or, you know, I really got othered in this space. Um, and so we came out with some acknowledgement around that and also at that time said, you know, spaces for women on college campuses were made when women were the least represented on campuses. And that isn't always true anymore. And that we need to build space that's kind of bigger for people of all these other gender identities. And when I first came out with some of that, there was a pretty... Um, varied response to that depending on generation and I think that that was um at first I was like oh this is a mountain that we're never gonna <laughs> we're never gonna get over and now that I've been in this role a couple of years 
I'm having conversations with people, you know, who were calling me at that time and were really upset that I'd kind of taken this space away from them and kind of seen that as a deficit. And now they're like, well, absolutely, we want to be, you know, the most cutting edge and the most um, ready to be a resource to people that are kind of coming in as emerging leaders now. And so you are going to get yelled at. You people, you're going to get a whole range of emotions. And how do you make space for that full range of response without taking it personally? And, and to stay steadfast and be like, no, like this is this is what the community has told us that they need from us. And this is how we're going to choose to show up again and again. And, you know, I hope that you'll... You'll choose to, to come and, you know, that those are my people on a list that get invited personally to every event and every learning series that we do. And some of them have chosen to come along with us and some of them haven't. And I kind of have to just have a, a, a you know mutual respect for that. Everything you're talking about is saturated with political conflict at multiple levels. I often ask people who go into politics, how did you get interested in this work? You know, did you grow up in a political family? Was there a catalyzing event or some gradual growth of awareness? What was your sort of road from a young person into the leader that you are today in this role? How did you get here? There's a story in my family and, you know, they they tell it often and kind of embarrassingly. So like, you know, like growing up for the years, especially like if I bring someone home I'm dating, like the story always got shared. When I was I'm probably about five years old. We, um, I grew up in a family that went to church, and we came out on Easter Sunday. And I told someone to stop smoking in Jesus's parking lot. And <laughs> they, my parents would say that that um, I don't think they would use the term political. I think I was, you know, one of those um, kids that got called bossy or um, talkative or kind of those types of characteristics. But I think that having those types of, I, I speak my mind and I tend to speak my values. And when I live outside of those values or I'm in environments that feel like I'm moving against my integrity, um, I normally get physically sick and I've kind of ceased the ability to function. And so I think that that, that at the very core of who I am is, has been present with me my entire life. And I guess through the years has gotten more um, political. Um, and, and I've gotten to kind of experiment in different parts of that, you know, student council and, you know, kind of some of those types of experiences. Um, but I think being part of changing people's hearts and minds has always been um, part of who I am and something that I carry with me. And I think one of the, like, foundational experiences that I got to have, um, and, you know, just, like, silly things of, like, uh with student council, I made all of the senior English classes vote on their prom theme because traditionally I would have chosen the prom theme for them. And I was like, well, that's silly. Like, this is all of our prom, so we should really, you know, it's just been kind of like things like that over time. And so I think just having that community engagement and being able to kind of move with people towards a bigger goal has, has been a little bit of how I've been kind of, I guess, political. What is something that used to outrage you that no longer outrages you? And most importantly, like, why the change? I've thought about this one a lot. It's been my question that I've asked friends probably since you've sent it to me. Because now you've gotten me really curious of, like, how have people changed um, over time? And I've had to think a lot about Adam Grant's book, Think Again. Because that's kind of what it made me think of a lot when you were asking that question of, like, what have I revisited or changed my mind on over time? 
I mentioned growing up in a religious environment, and part of that was that we were taught to love the person, hate the sin, which was a really interesting way of thinking about the world and really dove into um, tolerance more than acceptance. So I think growing up with this kind of statement around people's lifestyles and lifestyles that were different than mine. And when I say lifestyles in the Christian context of what I grew up in, I'm meaning queerness. And I think this has been one of my biggest growing edges in my life is that I was raised to believe to be in the binary and that anything outside of the binary was wrong or to be silenced. And as I've grown in my practice and grown in my own identity, um, being around people whom I love, that their very coreness of who they are has been silenced. And as I've gotten to be around those people more and love on them more and understand how much kind of just everybody included without people being able to actually show up as they are is really hurtful and harmful. And so I don't know necessarily outrage. I mean, I definitely think that I was um, socialized to believe, um, you know, lifestyle and sin in one way in a very black and white and kind of either or way. And as I've learned more and more about gender justice, I think I've been able to move from the word tolerance, which was what was used when I first kind of started in this work, to being able to move towards acceptance and and love and being able to lead with that a lot more. Um, and in that, I would say now is kind of what I've changed to is how do we be radically inclusive? And so... Um, you know, instead of this either or of like, you're in the binary, you're not in the binary. It's like, no, we're all in this journey together and we're understanding identity differently. So I think that that has been to my core. If I look at the biggest values change throughout my life um, between kind of growing up and now, I would say that that is something that has completely changed the core of who I am and how I show up in space and how I want to include people and how I want people to be able to be fully who they are and able to do that in a way that's celebrated um, and do that in a way that's normalized in our policies and in the way that we do programming and the way that we create space um, and, and not be exclusionary. And so perhaps with my own journey, and I think this is so often true, um, that's allowing me a different type of patience to sit in conversation with people in my current role who are on a different learning journey and being able to Um, understand instead of kind of deficit thinking being a little bit more expansive in how we think about people's um, queerness how we think about gender and how we think about building space where we can all be with each other that's a very important I think transformation from the idea of tolerance to acceptance and then you said and then into love because tolerance sounds like the right value but here you talking about it, I realized that it's very limiting and there is a subtle but very powerful difference between tolerance and acceptance in my personal life I like to instead of tolerate things I like to cherish them mm. <laughs> it can be challenging to move from tolerance to acceptance to cherishing or to love and it sounds like that's what you're trying to do Yeah, because I think, you know, when we were talking about the discomfort part of things, I think this is really part of it, is, um, you know, when we talk, I think tolerance was probably a word maybe mostly used by white people (laughs) to be like, oh, I can tolerate that. And now it's like, okay, but like, what would it actually look like to listen and believe people for who they are and understand their experiences to be their own 
um, and to believe them and to let them live in that reality and in their identity. And, you know, that can go across many isms and many kind of intersecting identities that we started this conversation with. Um, but for me, the one that I hold closest in my journey right now is gender and queerness and how do we create space that um, can be both and for people and and not be exclusionary based on a binary understanding of who experiences discrimination based on their gender identity specifically and specifically in leadership spaces. Yeah, and that can be challenging because we are socialized in binaries all over the place. And gender is one of the more blatant ones, and it's one of the ones that's being challenged in certain circles. But binary thinking is all over the place. And, I, and I've noticed in myself, but in all of the teaching that I've done, that my first task is kind of to just even be like, okay, so there were probably actually, instead of saying, well, what's the other side of the argument you're making? What are the other ways of looking at this? There's at least three. You know, most things have ten sides, but that that is challenging because it's time-consuming for one thing. Right, you have to open yourself up to the possibility that there's not just the opposite of what you're thinking, the the argument and the counterargument. That's a lifetime education in things. We've been talking for a while, and I, I want to be mindful of your time because you are a busy person doing a lot of great stuff. Is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you think is important to end on? I think we've naturally gotten to what I think is most important in this work right now and is to to recognize that we're all on a journey together. I think gender is changing. I think how we think about gender norms in the workplace is changing. And I think our ability to embrace more discomfort and more of that kind of squishy both and space um, or squishy choice points is kind of how I talk about it with our with our student team, um, how we're going to show up differently and not have some of those definite either or. Um, we all love to be right, but I, I would challenge that one of the things that we get to maybe think about differently now and in this time and in this space around leadership is that there's multiple there's multiple pathways and processes to kind of moving decisions forward. And there's not, you're right, there might be 10 sides to something. And how do we help people sit in that and make decisions in that kind of space? All right, talk about discomfort. If you have to deal with two sides, that's bad enough. But if you have to deal with 10 different perspectives or five or however many it is, that's going to generate discomfort as a, as a baseline. So embracing discomfort is one of the things that I'm taking away from this conversation with you. I really appreciate all of your time and your insights and your experience. Uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, Jeff.